0: This episode is part of season two of TV, a program created and produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation. We thank the following sponsors for their support of our organization and its work. Merck, the
1: Gori Law Firm, Early, Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Coten, and AstraZeneca. So good afternoon, Dr. Rimner. Um, thank you for joining us today for our latest episode of TV.
0: <laughs> thank you for having me.
1: So, uh, Dr. Rimner, I understand that you're a radiation oncologist. Uh, you're at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Yes. So, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and, you know, the faculty, et cetera?
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm a radiation oncologist specializing in mesothelioma, specifically pleural mesothelioma. I, um, of course, treat all other kinds of cancers in the chest area as well, but have a particular research interest in mesothelioma. Um, I joined the faculty at Memorial in 2010 and took over the thoracic service at that time. I had also done all my training there Mm -hmm. and um, very quickly jumped into the mesothelioma arena um, because at that time we had a phase two trial with a novel radiation technique ongoing that I um, continued and completed. And um, we'll be talking more about that later today. Mm -hmm. Um, And we just have a really experienced and cohesive mesothelioma team Uh, with our surgeons, our medical oncologists. And so when I started as faculty, um, it was a natural transition to join that team. It's been a very fruitful collaboration. Um, As a large center, we of course see large numbers of patients even with rare diseases like mesothelioma. And so that helps build um, experience, build uh, an expertise in um, treatment decisions, but also managing patients, managing side effects, managing what comes next, and so um, that, thats an advantage uh,
1: uh,
0: or and a privilege uh, to to work in such a such a place and such a group. So um, yeah, I'm now the director of thoracic radiation oncology research, and um, yeah, lead multiple clinical files in mesothelioma and other thoracic cancers.
1: Congratulations! Um, I didn't know about that promotion, so that's great to know because. Uh, I know that, you know, you've been um, very involved with the foundation, you know, for many years. And, you know, I recall all of you, the radiation oncologists, you know, leaders in this field sitting at one of our symposiums yeah. when speaking to other faculty members and patients and community and saying, you know, we have many unanswered questions in yeah. radiation oncology. And I think that discussion really has spurred, you know, many to really start looking at Let's, you know, how do we get these clinical trials up and running and how do we get it done? So do you want to talk to us a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on why we have this trial and, you know, why it's necessary?
0: Yeah, so um, we have now a phase three randomized trial on the role of radiation therapy following surgery and chemotherapy, targeting the entire space where the pleura was before the surgery. And that is a technique that we have developed at Memorial Sloan Kettering um, starting in 2005. And we've refined the technique ever since in the last 15 years. We've uh, at first you know, started doing a few patients and then launched two trials first at our institution and then expanding it to five other institutions where we taught them the same technique and made sure that it cannot only be done in our hands safely, but also in multiple institutions and that um, we were able to export the technique to other radiation oncology departments, which is obviously important uh, if we wanted to do a trial that is multi-institutional, national, um, that it can be safely done in multiple hands and not just by us.
1: How many centers will be participating in this clinical trial?
0: So in the current trial, that's a little bit open, yet we have uh, letters of uh, interest and confirmation that uh, from 23 institutions that want to participate and have expressed that. But even but since we've opened the study, actually, we've had several institutions that were not writing us letters uh, of intent um, that have joined. Um, currently, the study is in the process of being opened at multiple institutions. There's a little bit of a delay due to COVID um, and the IRB approval process within the institutions. Um, but now it is open at Memorial, it's open at the Cleveland Clinic, it's open at Baylor, it's open at Mayo, and the Boston centers are coming on, and many others. Uh, Mount Sinai is uh, coming on shortly. So, um, yeah, we, we're trying to, uh, oh, Chicago as well. Yeah, so.
1: centers then.
0: Yeah, we're trying to have a center really in every region of the US since it's a national trial. And um, it's actually the first phase three trial in early stage resectable disease that we've ever done in uh, the U.S. in mesothelioma. So um, we really want to have a broad coalition that it becomes available to many patients wherever we, we can offer it.
1: Wonderful. So now this is a clinical trial for pleural mesothelioma. Yep. Um, is it for all comers or is it uh, confined to epithelial?
0: So, it is epithelioid and biphasic. We have excluded patients with sarcomatoid subtype because many times these are not resectable, and we are focusing on patients that can undergo surgery. So, resectable early stage mesothelioma that's what this trial is focused on. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just to uh, provide a brief overview of what the concept is pa- patients um, who have or are deemed to have resectable mesothelioma um, will go for surgery. Um, typically a pleurectomy decortication, which is the type of surgery that removes the lining, the pleura of the lung, but not the lung itself, uh, which was historically the alternative, but that has fallen a little bit out of favor and is done less and less. And so the pleurectomy decortication is the more common surgery now. What that does is it leaves the lung in place on both sides. So the patient has both lungs, and that has been shown to probably be, be actually associated with better survivals probably just because it's a less extensive surgery and easier to recover from. Um, So that after that type of surgery, this is followed by chemotherapy, four rounds of platinum penetrexate chemotherapy, which is the standard chemotherapy in that setting. And then we are randomizing, meaning randomly assigning patients to either get this novel radiation technique, which we have dubbed imprint. Um, Mm -hmm. It stands for intensity modulated floral radiation therapy um, or no further treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is not clear that the addition of radiation, um, you know, how much of a benefit it provides in terms of survival. We have an inkling, obviously, from our previous trials, but we first needed to demonstrate that it's a safe technique, that we can safely perform it, that we don't hurt people that way. Mm-hmm. And um, now that it looks promising, we actually have to do the definitive trial to prove that it actually improves the outcomes and controls the mesothelioma as we think it does. But um, for that, we need that definitive trial where patients get assigned 50-50 to get the radiation or not get the radiation after chemotherapy and surgery. It is important to note that patients have to start the whole program from the beginning. So they can't have surgery and chemotherapy first and then come to us and say, can I still participate in the trial and get the radiation or not? They have to be enrolled upfront. And so it's really important to be um, mindful of this uh, when seeing new mesothelioma patients uh, that are newly diagnosed and have not started any other therapy.
1: So um, so pa- patients then once they're diagnosed with mesothelioma and they're you know, usually referred to, referred to a center of excellence, yeah. at that point they would meet with the medical oncologist, surgeon, perhaps radiation oncologist. Correct. All would be presented, a consent form would, would be signed. Yeah. And they would start the treatments. Yeah, I know there's a difference in some centers where some of the surgeons prefer chemotherapy prior to surgery. Mm-hmm. And some of them do it afterward. Yeah. Uh, have you made any allowances for the variations in, in practice?
0: Yes, we allow both sequences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same amount of re- uh, chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. It's the same type of surgery. Both mm-hmm. has to be done exactly per protocol guidance. But the sequence, whether chemotherapy goes first or surgery goes first, we've allowed for both. We have a slight preference towards doing surgery first. We used to do induction chemotherapy first at our institution as well for a long time, but found that some patients um, have worsening of their disease during the chemotherapy and then don't make it to surgery. And so then, you know, they cannot continue on the program. So whenever we think that a patient is actually a candidate for surgery, we have shifted towards doing surgery first. Mm-hmm. But there are certainly de- uh, situations where it makes sense to do chemotherapy first, and we allow for that, and we do it ourselves as well. Um, and like you know, it, it's a clinical judgment. It depends really on on the specific patient.
1: Mm-hmm. So now they so they they either had chemotherapy or they go, go directly you know directly to surgery. Yes. Following the surgery. Um, what is about the the recovery time that's allowed within this protocol before they jump into the next modality?
0: Yeah, we allow eight weeks between each modality, between surgery and chemotherapy and chemotherapy and radiation. Mm -hmm. Um, That's in our experience uh, sufficient for most patients. Mm -hmm. Um, We usually don't start anything before four weeks from the last treatment, because three, four weeks is about the time that most people need to recover from the last treatment, Mm -hmm. Um, obviously if someone Flies through the treatment and does really well. We can start sooner, but we that that is the realistic time frame. Um, that's not to say that we cannot make exemptions if someone really needs more time, and that's in the clinical judgment of the treating physicians. Um, and but but it would be a what we call a deviation from the actual uh, protocol.
1: And um, you do a randomization, so the chemo and the surgery are definite. Yeah. Radiation is what the randomization is now. When does the randomization take place, and when are the patients informed about you know what arm they're in?
0: Yeah. So after the second treatment, surgery or chemotherapy, before they start radiation or would start radiation, that's when the randomization happens, and that's when they, the patients would be informed. Obviously, there cannot be any um, placebo radiation. <laughs> uh, so patients will know whether or not they get radiation. Um, but that's before we start anything, they would of course be informed uh, which arm they get assigned to.
1: So uh, I guess another question I have, and I don't know if you've made allowances for if a patient was to come to say your institution and get their surgery and their chemotherapy with you, yeah. um, but have a participating center near the home where they yeah. would, and they have their radiation closer to home at a participating center.
0: Yes, mm-hmm. actually it's uh, more common for the chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. um, to be done locally or, uh, closer to home at participating centers. And we've allowed for that surgery and radiation. Um, we've actually built in a lot of quality control, um, mm-hmm. because many trials in mesothelioma are very heterogeneous. Mm-hmm. And so we've been very strict at making sure that surgeons have the experience that it takes to do a good surgery. And, um, they have to ha- they have to show us how many cases uh, they operate on, how they've done, um, how many complications they've had um, before they even are allowed to open it at their institution. And then um, each uh, surgery is being reviewed as well by Dr. Ruchus, our surgical co-PI and uh, a national and international expert on, on this type of florectomy decortication. Mm-hmm. Um, for the radiation part, again, the institutions have to meet a lot of previously defined criteria from a technical perspective. As well as from um, uh, an experience, although for for the radiation, we've allowed institutions with li- little experience to enroll because what we have committed to is that I will personally review every single radiation plan in the country. Mm-hmm. So every patient that enrolls in any radiation facility that participates in this trial will have to be pre-reviewed by me um, and verified and signed off on. So they. the the thing about radiation is you can measure exactly how much radiation goes where You can measure how much radiation goes to where the mesothelium was before surgery. You can measure how much radiation goes to all the normal organs, like the lung, the heart, the esophagus. Um, and you can by doing so control what the likelihood of complications will be. And so there are very clear guidelines that we have to meet. Mm -hmm. And, um, it takes a very experienced radiation oncology and medical physics team, to program the machine correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not enough to just have a machine uh, mm-hmm. that's fancy and shiny and looks good, but you actually have to know how to program it specifically for, the, for this very complex radiation technique. So we've committed to doing the QA all you know, at Memorial and verify every step of the radiation ourselves.
1: Which is excellent because that really gives you the opportunity at a conclusion of a trial to be able to make those comparisons that everybody is getting radiation designed by an expert um, adequate yeah um, and then of course you'll be collecting all the toxicity data as well so you know I think many of the people who will be listening to this as part of the um, of, of the series you know, have a fair idea about the chemotherapy and the surgery so mm-hmm. I'd like to zone in a little bit more on radiation on the IMRT yeah. what type of side effects do you see and how do you mitigate for those side effects
0: yeah. So side effects from radiation build up over time. So this is a course of about five and a half weeks of radiation, daily treatments, five days a week. Mm -hmm. Um, Weekends and holidays are off. Um, And the first few weeks, usually people don't feel a whole lot. Um, But then as time goes on towards the end of or second half of the radiation, this type of radiation can make people very tired. Mm -hmm. And I always warn them um, that it's a very profound fatigue Usually, the first reaction that I get from patients is tired. I'm tired anyway from everything I've been through. It's I can handle that, and I have to tell them no, no. This is very profound. It's to the point where you don't want to get out of bed. It's it, it can be significant. It obviously varies from patient to patient, um, but it can be quite significant. And it's really important to get up, get going, stay active as active as you can be um, to. To uh, actually mitigate that fatigue. It's, it's an interesting fatigue in that it doesn't get better when you rest. It actually gets worse when you rest. So we very much encourage patients to stay active. It's very helpful to have a family that makes you get out of bed. Um, so we engage the family as well um, and uh, w- watch out for that very carefully. That's been actually one of the most uh, significant side effects um, and that can last beyond the radiation for several weeks or even months it mm-hmm. gradually disappears over time mm-hmm. um, other side effects include skin irritation that is usually limited to the course of the radiation and a few weeks after and resolves. Um, discomfort with swallowing can occur depending on how close we have to get to the esophagus which runs right down the middle of the chest mm-hmm. um, and that can result in this uh, discomfort or pain even uh, when eating hard or dry foods, spicy food, alcohol, that will all burn. So we advise patients if they experience that to adjust their diet and of course, give them medications to help with the swallowing. And then um, later on, um, about one to six months after the radiation, there is a risk of the lung getting inflamed. Even though we're doing everything we can with this technique to avoid the lung, um, it cannot be avoided 100%. And so depending on how a patient's body reacts to the radiation, there is still a, an about a 20% chance of developing cough and shortness of breath to a degree mm-hmm. that they may need to be treated with steroids to suppress the inflammation. And it feels like having a really bad cold or pneumonia, that type of feeling. Um, rarely do we have to admit patients to the hospital and give them oxygen, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in very severe cases, it can lead to complications where, You know there can be an infection on top of the pneumonitis, and one thing can lead to another where it gets more even more serious or even Mm life-threatening. That is really what we've established to make sure that this technique is safe and to keep that risk at a minimum. Mm -hmm. But it's not a zero percent risk, Um, but it's a one or two percent risk.
1: Thank you. That's what I was going to ask. You know what what the percentage is because sometimes it helps to put it in perspective. Because I know that when we discuss clinical trials, we really have to outline any possible side effect that can occur. And I think sometimes to be able to put into perspective and say, these are likely, these are less likely, and this is a one to 2% chance of this occurring, I think helps people as they make those decisions. Yeah. Now, um, you know, of course now, you know, the big McGill in the room is uh, is Mm COVID-19. So my question to you is that if I have a patient who's very interested in this trial, Maybe hesitant about traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get to New York um, worried about hotels. Yeah. Where do patients stay when they come to New York? Um, is the Hope Lodge still functioning? Yeah. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So our social worker department has uh, several options about housing um, that patients can apply for. And of course, we help them apply for it. Uh, Hope Lodge is uh, one of our more commonly used ones from the American Cancer Society. And uh, has the advantage that it's a little bit more than a, just a hotel room. It has a kitchenette and mm-hmm. um, feels a little bit more like your own small apartment mm-hmm. um, and your own space. Mm-hmm. So it, it does. You're absolutely right. It does require a commitment by patients and their families to undergo a treatment like that, especially when it's not close to home. Mm-hmm. We try to make it as possible, as, you know, as as easy as possible. That's not to say that it's easy, but um we we have ways to to help with that yes
1: so not to put you on the spot but my question is we spoke about this so many years ago Mm -hmm. what took so long to get this trial up and running? yeah
0: Yeah. so it's an interesting story we actually suggested this uh, because mesothelioma is so rare we couldn't do it just as a single institution it had to be done as a multi-institutional trial on a national level um some of these trials are even done on a global level um, so we first approached uh, the, the Energy Oncology Cooperative Group in 2014-2015, and at first it was shut down as not uh, feasible. And um, the irony was that on the one hand they wanted more preliminary data, on the other hand they said you'll never be able to do this trial um, because it's too rare of a disease. So we were caught a little bit in between. What helped us greatly was that the NCI then came up with a, a rare diseases initiative with a focus on mesothelioma mm-hmm. and so there was um, a symposium that we all attended um, uh, jointly from MARF, the ISLC and um, the NCI mm-hmm. and at that uh, symposium essentially all the all the stakeholders, all the researchers in the U.S. that work on mesothelioma were in one room and over two days we hashed out two major questions and trials, one for resectable early stage disease and one for advanced stage disease, and decided what do we think is the most promising next step in the management of mesothelioma. And so for early stage resectable disease, this proposal from us was picked as the most promising next step. And so that is then how it actually came into reality, because the NCI said, we are going to sponsor this trial, we are going to support it. And we went back to Energy Oncology, who then, with the support of NCI, of course, uh, it was an easy thing to agree, um, to say, okay, in that case, we, we can certainly move forward with that. And so that's how we moved forward, to, uh, and, and, and it took another two years to actually get it open. Um, so it, it, it was finally approved by the NCI in January of this year mm-hmm. and has since then um, gone through all the institutional approval processes. Um, we at Memorial are open to accrual uh, as of June, um, but ma- and many other institutions are just beginning to open the trial, so and and beginning to accrue patients, and many more have it still in the approval process and are expected to open hopefully by the end of the year.
1: So congratulations, because I you know I know the struggle. I was there at the meeting with you and. You know it's taken a while so you know i guess something i would like to add to the mix when we think about you know what we know and what we don't know um you know i'm I'm sure you recall that many of my patients recall that for many years uh we started patients with ellipta and cisplatinum and Mm -hmm. we followed it with maintenance treatment of ellimpta uh we based that information off trials that had taken place in lung cancer and just extrapolated the data and said Yeah, sure. This is going to work. And it became almost, you know, you know, almost, you know, uh, every practice or many practices, this was their protocol, what they were doing. And then finally, a clinical trial was done. And we found out that maintenance does not work. Mm -hmm. Not with Olympta. Yeah. You know, it's, we all have the, you know, practice um, practices that we follow based upon our own, you know, sort of, you know, homegrown, this is what we think works. So right. I think sometimes, you know, biting the bullet and saying, we don't have that information about radiation therapy. And though many people might think it's it's the be all and end all in conjunction with surgery and chemo, this trial is finally going to give us that answer. Yeah.
0: And we're going into it with an open mind. Um, because obviously we developed this radiation technique. I'm a radiation oncologist. I believe that what I'm doing has a value. Um, But at the same time, even though we have an inkling that it actually improves survival in our patients, we don't know that for a fact. Um, You need the appropriate statistical power. You need enough patients assigned to getting the radiation and not getting the radiation to really be able to analyze it carefully and make a definitive statement. And at the same time, it's not an easy treatment. It's not a walk in the park um and so we're very mindful of that and because of that we also have built in patient reported outcomes we want to hear from the patients how do they feel Mm -hmm. and how hard is it from their perspective not just from me looking at them Mm -hmm. and do they at the end think that it was all worth it Uh, Mm -hmm. because that is important as well right if you can improve survival in patients that's a great thing but you also want to make sure that you can improve survival and have a good survival, have actually good quality of life, even if maybe for a period of time, you're going through some rough treatments, eventually you want to actually recover from that and enjoy the the benefits of having gone through a tough treatment. So we are looking at that as well, not just looking at does radiation work.
1: So you're looking at sort of the Cantrell model of the time trade-off. Yeah. Yes, okay. remember those studies were done many years ago, but they hold value today because It is, you know. I always tell patients you have to think about what you're buying with this. Yeah, You want exactly. to know that you have something to measure and something to think about. Right. That you know when you make these decisions, you know, I made this decision and what was my outcome and was it was was it worth it? So, I think it's great that you're you know uh, including these you know uh, patient-reported outcomes, um, quality of life survey. I imagine is being done. Um exactly you know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, you don't probably have the protocol in front of you, but when are you doing the measurements with the quality of life? Is it periodically through all of the modalities or? Yeah, Good. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: We, yeah, because it is really a package of three modalities. We call it the tri-modality approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of the modalities has its own set of side effects. It's not just the radiation
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that has side effects. It, they're, they're all challenging treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end, we want to make sure that each of them is worth it.
1: Thank you. So uh, what we'll do, uh, Dr. Rimner, at the conclusion of this interview and when we uh, put it up on the MISO-TV uh, channel, uh, we'll also put a link to the clinical trial itself with the proper name so mm-hmm. that patients who are interested. Um, if they're you know, a treating oncologists is not familiar with this protocol, yeah. they can get that information. But I think something that you said earlier is something that we really need to stress is do not jump in and start treatment immediately. Right. You need to understand what your options are um, because sometimes uh, you know, patients are so worried about starting now We right. rule out some of these unique opportunities that are available to them when they're newly diagnosed. Yeah. You wanna make sure you have everything on the table so you can look at all of the options and make a decision.
0: Yeah, actually we I, I see that in my practice as well. Um, under, completely understandably, patients are anxious to get started. Mm-hmm. However, um, I, I explained to them that it's important to first really do all the tests and know exactly what the best course of action is. It's worse if you start something just because you were in a rush. makes yourself feel better, maybe just that you're doing something quickly. But at the same time, then after one or two uh treatments of whatever you started on you find out hmm, maybe that was not the optimal way to start and you try to shift and that's actually a worse situation than if you had spent you know maybe two weeks three weeks up front mm-hmm. as long as you know patients are not too symptomatic and don't need medically urgent treatment but if they are if they can if they have the luxury of allowing themselves two three weeks to sort out what is the best cor- first course of action that time is actually well invested and well spent um, and then you can start on a on a course that is the most appropriate and optimal
1: mm-hmm. from the beginning. And uh, what do you um, what do you predict will be the time that will be needed to uh, to get this trial uh, you know to reach uh, to reach the number of uh, patients that you need to accrue? How yeah, it, would it be? Um,
0: we aim to finish the trial within four to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, mesothelioma is a rare disease. Um, we're aiming for 168 patients, mm-hmm. so. Um, and then half of them get radiation, half of them don't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then it all depends on how many patients we can
1: mm-hmm.
0: enroll and treat according to the protocol um, that will determine whether we can meet that timeline or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Rimner, thank you very much for this, uh, for the time you've given us today. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add about IMRT? Um, you know, I'm wondering if, if you could just take a minute Just explain to patients what's the difference between traditional radiation and IMRT because um, I I don't know that everybody, this is sort of new language sometimes for people. Yeah,
0: Yeah. radiation oncology is a field that has a lot of technology involved and a lot of acronyms that are, it's an alphabet soup. Um, IMRT is a technique that uh, was developed to really target very unusual shapes of targets in the body. So if you think about the flora, it wraps around the entire lung and it um, covers the diaphragm and goes all the way down, um, even covering the upper parts of the abdomen on the right side around the liver, on the left side around the stomach and um, the bowels, the spleen. And so it's a three-dimensionally very complex shape. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a dome of the diaphragm and then it's essentially a donut shape um, all around the lung. Mm -hmm. And traditional radiation techniques, were not able to target such a complex shape in a reliable way either we would give too much radiation to the normal organs that we are trying to avoid, or we wouldn't appropriately cover the target area which we want to treat where the mesothelioma cells are. And so only this technique, which uses multiple different angles that the radiation is coming from. And maybe just for people to understand radiation is really X-rays it's high energy X-rays. So it feels just like having an X-ray taken. Um, the patient just lies on a, on a table and the machine moves around them and gives off the x-rays. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but doing that from multiple different angles, and now in the next iteration, even um, as the machine moves on an arc, essentially 360 degrees around the patient, it gives off the radiation. That's what allows us to treat with the highest level of precision, just the outside or the surface of the lung without treating the lung itself and or the other organs that we're trying to avoid.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Another technique, maybe, that is worth mentioning is proton therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, that is also allowed per trial. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it has certain, it, it's still radiation. It's, um, you know, the, it, from the patient experience, it's very similar, mm-hmm. um, but it has different physical properties. And sometimes in specific situations, it can avoid certain organs even more effectively than the IMRT. And that's a case by case decision and uh, discussion but it is permitted per trial. And so there's more and more proton centers around the country as well. And if they have this trial open, they can use this trial, as long as they're meeting the same organ constraints, the same uh, dose constraints that we have set forth as acceptable.
1: Thank you, Um, I wasn't aware of that. So this trial actually gives the option to buy more T versus or proton.
0: Yes, whatever works better for a given patient. And that really depends on how they're built on the inside and what things look like after surgery.
1: So, um, just, uh, again, just emphasize how long is the, does the radiation take? Um, I don't remember exactly what you said in terms of the time commitment.
0: So it's a five and a half week course. It's usually around 28 treatments, mm-hmm. daily treatments, Monday to Friday. So that's five days a week mm-hmm. before one starts radiation. There's a need for a planning scan, um, which needs to be done about two weeks before the start of radiation. And since we're doing all that uh, quality control, there may be maybe two or three extra days that we need if it's not done at our institution because your institution would have to send us the information we have to review it and send it back to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, that time is well spent Mm -hmm. upfront because once the machine is programmed, everything is Mm preset. So one scan about two weeks before the start of radiation and then five and a half weeks of actual treatment.
1: And um, how long are they on the table for? Because, you know, I guess some patients are still, you know, they still are are healing from their surgery. Yeah,
0: Yeah. Um, usually somewhere around 30 to 45 minutes.
1: Um,
0: But it depends on how quickly we get them in the right position. We are very careful. This is millimeter precision. So we take x-rays to verify their position and we move them a few millimeters until it's perfect. And then we actually deliver the radiation. And so it also depends on how... How well a patient can lie still and not move that makes things easier. <laughs> if someone is uncomfortable then, and, 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 and wiggles a lot, then we have to adjust it more and that takes longer. Um, so our goal is to make patients as comfortable as someone can possibly be on a hard table um, because we know that makes it actually easier for the patient and also makes the treatment quicker.
1: Thank you. So this was a very comprehensive look at the protocol and radiation in general. So I really appreciate the time and um, want to thank you again and wish you luck on uh, getting this, uh, you know, this protocol up, you know, you've gotten it up and running, getting it up at the other centers and, you know, getting what we need to, you know, get some of these very important data points. Thank you, Dr. Rimner and have a very good day and stay safe.